morning. Uh, a big thank you to David McBride and Zach Carden for uh, filling in while I was away the last two weeks. I'm very grateful for them. Happy Father's Day to all of you. Um, just a little insight. Um, last week I had a, a dream. Some would call it a nightmare. Um, that I was getting up to preach and I didn't have a sermon ready uh, and I was terrified and so I ran down to my office and I found some papers and I came up and I opened it up and it was just uh, restaurant menus. <laughs> I woke up sweating and very panicked. Uh, thankfully that's not the case for us this morning. Um, so if you will turn with me in your Bibles to First Kung Pao um, no, I'm just kidding. Sorry. No, we're, we're continuing our series in Genesis, so if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 14, I'm going to start, uh, though I'm going to be covering the whole chapter, I just, I want to start reading from uh, verse 11 uh, so that I can avoid all the really difficult Old Testament names. Um, no, we'll, we'll go back and talk about those earlier verses, but let me just pick up uh, in verse 11. Because this is a long sermon. Genesis chapter 14. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedalomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eshcol and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Father, we ask as we open your word and study from it this morning that you would speak to our hearts. Open our eyes, Father, to, to realities that perhaps we had not seen before, to truths uh, that touch our very spirits and our souls. Father, that your Holy Spirit would do his work in us this morning. We invite him in to do this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, again, it's uh, Father's Day, and so today we're looking more at the life of Father Abraham and his journey as we continue through uh, the book of Genesis. And the question is, what are we looking at today? Well, specifically this morning, we are looking at when times are good, when times are good, when favor is on our side It is almost the opposite of what we looked at last time when I was up here with you all and we we were looking at the life of Job and we were asking about what we do when bad news comes. That, I think, can tend to be a, a common theme in sermons. How do we deal with hardship and, and disaster and bad news and sad news and brokenness? Because we live in a, in a very broken world that surrounds us with, with dangers and surrounds us with hardships. And we hold to a faith that promises us not that we will be free from these things, but that they will actually come to us. But today we're looking at when the sun is shining, so to speak. When we are on a, on a roll, when everything is going our way, when everything is breaking our way. Faith plus success. And I found myself deeply challenged this week as I worked through this particular text. And, and, I, and I hope the same will be true of you. Uh, if you are, if your life is in the middle of a hardship and a challenge, well, you can just hold on for about a week or two because um, we'll be right back in the dumps with old Abraham Uh, as is the pattern of his life and, and many of ours. The question for us this morning, how do we view faith when we have success? How do we view faith when we have success? We've all seen the, the sports star that's interviewed uh, at the end of a, a, a game, a big game. And if they're a believer, sometimes they'll say something like, um, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And you wonder, what's the context for that? Uh, or my personal favorite, which was uh, Ray Lewis, who played middle linebacker for the Baltimore Ravens. And he would quote, uh, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. And I assume that is meaning that the other team is, is against him and that their weapons won't take defeat from him. Anyway, it's a total misinterpretation of Scripture. It's a total misuse of the passage. But what does Scripture say to us when we experience success and faith? Well, Genesis 14, as we skipped the first little section, I told you we'd go back and talk about it. It opens up with this war history. An alliance of kings is set against another alliance of kings. 
And what does all of this have to do with Abram? Well, you'll remember that Abram's nephew Lot, when we last saw him in Genesis 13, he was camped at the outskirts of of the city of Sodom. And then he progressively is making his way closer and closer and closer until he's in the city. A lesson uh, on sin here, absolutely, to be sure. Sin and its subtle progress in the life of the individual when sin is not dealt with. But that aside for now, we'll come back to that because we'll deal with Lot later uh, in, in other weeks. But Lot is now in Sodom. He set his camp towards Sodom, facing Sodom. He got closer to Sodom on the outskirts of Sodom. Now he's in the city. And this war between this alliance of kings, Sodom is is raided and the people and the possessions are, are taken in captivity. And that includes Lot and his family and, and all of his possessions. So Abram decides to go after and to rescue his nephew from his captors. Why? Because the promise of the land was for Abram and his family. Now, obviously, Lot should never have been in Sodom, but nevertheless, this is where he was found. Then there's also this issue of Abram is not getting younger. He's he's aging considerably, and he still has no heir to inherit what he's going to pass on. And Lot is the closest thing to him outside of his wife, So Abram feels that it's his duty to go and rescue his nephew, Lot. This is a legitimate mission uh, because these weren't just little ragtag armies. These weren't a a group of volunteers. The the ones that, that Abram's going against, I mean, these are some of the greatest nations in the day in that ancient Near East. And what is crazy is that Abram was successful. He recovered all the people. He recovered all the possessions. It is an absolute miracle. Then we switch to the second half of the story, which we read. And the second half of the story is the story about Abram's encounter with these two kings. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. Now, I want to look at these two kings in reverse order. First, we look at Abram and this king of Sodom. Obviously, Sodom being a city which is known for its its depravity, for its wickedness. We know God will destroy this city. Spoiler alert, if if we come back to that again. Uh, uh, God will ultimately destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the king of Sodom comes to Abram and he makes a proposition And at the outset, it doesn't sound like a bad deal. You take all the possessions that you've recovered, and I will take the people. Because you deserve credit for the victory, Abram. You deserve credit for what you've accomplished. Your name should be made great. This is not, as we said, this was not a a, a small victory. This was a major victory. You deserve to be made rich in the land. You should be victorious. And what does Abram say? He says, no. 
More than that, he says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take even the most minute thing from you, lest you say, I'm the one who made Abram rich. Why? Because Abram knows that the promise God made to him to provide for him was going to be fulfilled by God in his way. And that making an alliance, which he is forbidden to do, with an evil man like the king of Sodom would be a shortcut to blessing. Oh, the shortcuts to blessings. God creates the institution of marriage, a blessing. A shortcut would be premarital sex. God blesses you financially. A shortcut would be cheating on taxes, cutting corners in business. This is a recurring theme throughout Scripture. Jacob is promised to be chosen over his brother Esau. His shortcut was deceiving his father Isaac. Abram is promised a son through Sarah. His shortcut is having Ishmael with Hagar. God promises to give the nations to Jesus. The shortcut Satan offers him is that he can have a crown without having a cross. And thankfully, Jesus rejects this offer. But the shortcuts are offered frequently for us. It's a way to, to bend God's design to get what God has promised. And it never works out the way that you think it will. So here is Abram. He's, he's messed things up uh, early on in, in, in his going to Egypt. But now he's killing it. He's doing great. He, he's on a roll. He, he's, uh, he's becoming and he's acting like a, like a hero. There's another figure in our story, a second king. His name is Melchizedek. Melchizedek is mysterious. He, he comes out of nowhere and he vanishes into nowhere. Uh, the text depicts him as not only mysterious, but also as a, as a really lofty figure. Someone who is greater than Abram. And we may be wondering, how could that be? How could someone be greater than Abram? Isn't Abram the most important figure in the moment after the destruction of the flood and the, and the, and the, the scattering of the nations at the Tower of Babel? And, and Abram is chosen out of all of humanity to be the seed bearer of a great nation and the, the, the hope of humanity. Those who bless Abram will be blessed and those who curse Abram will be cursed and all of a sudden, here comes this figure who is greater than him. Well, what do we know about Melchizedek? His name means king of righteousness. And he is a priest of Salem or Shalom. He's a priest of peace. And he's a priest of Shalom, Jerusalem. He's a priest from Jerusalem. Uh, before the Israelites have taken Jerusalem under King David. He is a priest king of the city of Jerusalem. 
Now, important figures in the Old Testament typically have a, a lineage of who they came from and who came after them. Uh, and, and, and we don't have that for Melchizedek. We have nothing. All we know is that he's from Jerusalem, and so that would make him a Canaanite. So he's this priest king from Jerusalem, a Canaanite. That's all we know. But, but when he describes his God, he uses this really strange Hebrew, Hebrew phrase in verse 19. Elohim El Elyon. Elohim El Elyon, meaning God Most High. And then we see Abraham use the exact same name when he's speaking to the king of Sodom in verse 22. I have lifted my hand to Yahweh El Elyon, the Lord, God Most High. And from those two corresponding passages, we can see that Melchizedek and Abram worship the same God. In fact, they both repeat, repeat the phrase possessor of heaven and earth. He, he's not a territorial God. He's not just the God of my lands or my people. He is the possessor of all of the earth and all of the people. And we see from this passage that it is Melchizedek who blesses Abram. But isn't Abram the one who is supposed to bless people? Wasn't it supposed to come through him? And in the ancient Near East tradition, Blessing someone always goes from the superior to the inferior. Isaac blesses Jacob, Jacob blesses Judah, and so on. Well, Abram also gives a tithe to Melchizedek. It's not just a way of saying, um, uh, thanks for who you are, we appreciate it. No, it, this is a, a, a recognition of obligation. It, it was an acknowledgement that Melchizedek was superior. But who is he? Where does he come from? Again, we don't know. The, the Bible remains hauntingly silent. Here's what it does say. A thousand years later, King David Another king priest of Jerusalem, he writes in Psalm 110, and he's singing of the Messiah who is to come. And, and the, the image that David is giving us is of uh, the king that, that the people truly need. Uh, the one who could be the priest that, that David could never be as he considers his own life and his own failings. And he says in Psalm 110, verse 4, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. And then speaking of the Messiah, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Not in the line of Aaron, not a Levite priest, but an entirely different order of priest that would be truly required to make us right with God. It requires someone, it requires a, a mediator, a, a, a priest of an entirely different order. Melchizedek, by the, the way that the Holy Spirit has given us this text, the, the strangeness of it, he is a type. It, it's a, a foreshadowing of what is to come. It's saying, can you see there has to be something more than us 
humanity. Something more than you to make things right between you and God. He is a type of Christ. He has no beginning in the story. He has no end that we're aware of. For, for Jesus, it, it, it's, it's that he is co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. And we know he has an incarnation, that he comes and he's born on the earth, but, but, but he is co-eternal. For Melchizedek, we're just not told what his birthday is. But he shows us Christ in the Old Testament story. In John chapter 8, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees about who he is. And they say he has a demon because he's promising eternal life to those who believe in him. And they say, Abraham and the prophets all have died. How can you promise these things? And Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. And they sort of look at each other and they say, you're not even 50 years old. How could that even be? And Jesus replies, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is the name that God gives to Moses in the burning bush when Moses says, who should I say has sent me? And Yahweh responds, tell them I am has sent you. And so the Pharisees are tearing their clothes and they want to stone Jesus because he has just said, I am equal with God and I have no beginning of days. Well, Melchizedek is showing us that it will take more than just an earthly priest to atone for sin. It will take someone who has no beginning of days and has no end of days. And Jesus is that one. In the book of Hebrews in chapter 7, we read about this praise of Jesus where the author says, Jesus has become a priest in the order of Melchizedek, by the power of an indestructible life. His victory over this world and all it has to throw at us is literally indestructible. It cannot be destroyed. This is what the resurrection means, the resurrection of Jesus. Well, what is this text in Genesis 14? It's a story of Abram. It shows us the heart of someone who sees the truth of their situation with God on a good day. At his most righteous moment, the king of Sodom comes and he says, You earned it, Abram. You did well. Now take it. You have justified yourself. Now take what you deserve. Take it. And Abram says, No. And he looks to one greater than himself for the status that he needs, for the hope that he has in the promise of God. Do you, do you see it in the text? Do you see Abram is not just someone who knows I am a sinner, that, that I am someone who has failed and I need forgiveness I am someone who needs to turn from my sin in repentance. He doesn't even trust in his own righteousness. 
and his own performance. He, he literally repents of his righteousness. And he looks to Melchizedek as his priest. And they have this priestly meal of bread and wine together. And this is where I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning. Having an encounter with Jesus Christ means not just realizing that that you are guilty and you have a, a, a need to be covered in the blood of Christ. I am a failure. I need help. But it also means that my best will not do. And if I try to stand on that, I will fall. There is one who has come into the world not only to die the death that you owe, but who plays music at inopportune times. (laughs) These are the days of Elijah. We've been singing that at my house a lot. But it's that Christ not only comes to die the death you owe, but he lives the life that you owe. This is one of the favorite topics at the time of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther talked a great deal about this. It is the concept of repenting of your righteousness, not just of your sin. It's uh, made popular by, uh, in America by a man named George Whitfield. We have a picture of Whitfield we're going to put up. There he is, handsome devil. Um, I graduated high school from Whitfield Academy, and they had this portrait hanging in their basement, rightfully so. Uh, and I remember looking at the portrait and thinking, I should have gone to Wesleyan. Uh, Whitfield was actually cross-eyed, as the picture has clearly depicted, uh, after contracting measles uh, as a child. Uh, You think he would have just paid the portrait artist a few extra dollars to make that correction, Um, but he did not, uh, probably boasting in weakness, I would guess. Uh, but, But Whitfield would preach very powerfully, and you can imagine with eyes like that, you're not sure where he's looking, and so it had a little bit more power, a little bit haunting. But one of the things that Whitfield would preach on in early America was that one of our greatest problems was that when things were going wonderfully, when things were going great, was resting in the good things, resting in our righteousness, resting in our accomplishments, resting in our achievement, resting in our good karma, rather than seeing the need to repent of our righteousness and look to Christ. What does repenting of righteousness do? Repenting of righteousness shows you the essence of sin And it shows you the essence of what the gospel of Christ is. Here's how Whitfield put it uh, in my language. You hear the message of Jesus, 
You know the need to turn away from your sin. You hear about Jesus. You say, I need a savior. I need forgiveness. And then you become like Adam and Eve. And you begin to think, for God to not reject me, for God to accept me, what I must do is good works. Not just as a response to his mercy, which is what we should do, but as a way of gaining a standing with God. And Whitfield's analogy is that like Adam and Eve, we start sowing fig leaves with our repentance and with our good deeds as a way to say, look at me now, bless me now, accept me now. I know I need a covering for my sin, but look at my fig leaf. Let me show you what I can bring you now. Whitfield says that that idol, the idol of your own righteousness and its worth, is the last idol of the human heart to go. Here's the essence of sin. The essence of sin is not rule-breaking. That's a mistake. It's not just that we have this bad habit of doing and choosing the wrong thing. It's much deeper than that. That's the symptom. Rule breaking is a a symptom of what our problem of sin is. The disease is our need, our desire to place something or someone in the place of Christ at the center of our life. And to make it our savior. That is the essence of sin. To place something or someone other than Christ at the center and to look at it for salvation. The default of the human heart is self-salvation. And when you, you get your life cleaned up and you, and you get on the right track or your life is just really going well, that self-salvation goes into overdrive. And you begin to really think, I can find my worth. I can find my significance. I can find my meaning in the good things that I do and in the good things that are happening to me. I remember visiting a church in Sydney that was on the harbor shoreline. Absolutely stunning views. Everyone in the suburb was healthy and happy. There was no crime. Tons of wealth. People were friendly and kind everywhere you went. And I asked uh, when we were visiting the church and I said, how many people attend this church? And they looked at me and they said, about 30 people. Nice people, good things. Who needs salvation from that? Who was, the, who was Jesus toughest on in his earthly ministry? It was the self-righteous, the people that thought that they were okay The ones who had a a false sense of security when all things were going well, that is the hardest time to see your need of God. 
When your life is rolling and and, and you begin to put your trust in those good things that you see in your life and, and your roots go down into that and you can feel it. And that is where you begin to feel your sense of worth, your significance. That is where you begin to find your salvation. If you're waiting for love and You finally meet Mr. Wright, Mrs. Wright, and when things are going well, you can look at that and say, you see, I am loved. Or or if you've found great success in work, everything you put your hand to is, is, is prosperous and successful, and you can say, you see, they need me. Or your kids are uh, exceptional at school or, or at sports and they're, they're finding great success and, and scholarships. Or, or your kids are, 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 are well behaved in church, better behaved than the preacher's kids who are drawing on the wall with crayons. And what do you say? You see, I am a good parent. And because I am a good parent, because I have applied consistently the principles I bask and I find my worth in what I have done. You take a drug addict who who says that when they take the drug, they find their sense of salvation. You take the well-disciplined mom who, who saves money and is, is careful and, and keeps the home in, a, in a, a state of impeccable cleanliness. And the kids get to school on time. There's basically no difference between the two of them. Now, the outside world would look and see a massive difference, but there's no difference between them because they have both found salvation outside of Jesus Christ. Do you see, the essence of sin is to try to find salvation somewhere else. As a parent, I wonder if you ever look down your nose at, at, at other parents. You look at your kids and they're well-behaved and they're doing all the right things and they're becoming successful and you look at the other parents and their kids are struggling and they're having a hard time and you don't say anything but you just feel it. At some point, the gospel is not penetrating our hearts. Repenting of righteousness helps us to see the essence of our sin, but it also shows us the goodness and the essence of the gospel. The gospel rejects this idea that good deeds will bring you a good life. How does Jesus challenge that? Good deeds bring a good life. Good deeds will bring good karma. How does Jesus uh, challenge that? Explain to me the life of Jesus. The greatest man who ever lived, absolutely pure, absolutely holy. Did he find great financial benefit and blessing? Was he heralded as as wonderful by, by all of humanity? No, he was despised. He took what he did not deserve so that you and I can receive what we did not deserve. 
That is why the gospel has to change the way that we see the ways of the world at all times. Is there anything in your life right now, any good thing, any gift, any grace, any fruit of character that you can look at honestly and say, that is here for any reason outside of the sheer grace of God? Christians, by the way, have a disease of not getting this. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians What makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you didn't? There is freedom when you begin to repent of your righteousness and live your life as though it has been paid for. That's what it means to be a Christian. When you live your life not as someone who has to earn something. You don't have to climb the ladder up to God. Christ has already descended. But you live as someone who knows that my life is paid for. What do you do when life is great? When you're doing great spiritually, when your finances are not an issue, you're humbled. And you say to yourself, the reason these great things are coming to me, the reason there's any change of character in my life is simply because of the mercy and the grace of God. And I am humbled and I am thankful because Jesus took what I deserve I now receive things I do not deserve because God loves me. I'm not proud. I'm not anxious waiting for those good things to be taken away from me because I know it is a gift. You look at the good things that God has blessed you with and you are thankful, but you do not draw your life from them. You look to the one who is greater who comes to bring bread and wine, just as Melchizedek did with Abram. Let's pray. Father, I confess it's, it's easy to take a passage like this and, and, and talk about uh, your provision in, in, in blessing Abram and protecting him and recovering Lot and the families and and there's truth in that and there's lessons in that. But Father, the harder lesson I believe is what we've just talked about. The harder lesson is the repentance of righteousness. And Father, you know my heart and I've had to confess this all this week as I've been challenged by this text. How easy it is for us to look at the good things that you've blessed us with and to think this was my own accomplishment. This was my own intellect. This was my own uh, perseverance or my work ethic that has accomplished these things. And while you, of course, do not call us to be lazy 
You call us to work hard, but you also remind us that these things come because of you and because of your hand and your work. Forbid that we begin to put our own trust in ourselves. Oh, Father, give us a heart of repentance of our own righteousness. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.